Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. And with that, let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Good to be with you again, John. I, I don't know if there's a big lag, lag time between us recording and how long this stuff comes out, um, how long it takes. So you're doing all the behind-the-scenes work, as I've said. Um, but it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Just send our kids home on a break from the college here. And I wanted your opinion on this, John. Lights, Christmas lights are showing up. And the main Christmas tree in the lobby of MLC is up. And lights are going on around town. And um, Mrs. Bouston has been listening to Christmas music for about three weeks now. So I wanted to know, oh where's my. your stand on that, John? <laughs> these are these are fighting words to some people. Yeah, I know. I generally don't really do much Christmas stuff until after Thanksgiving. But I do know many people who, as soon, it'll be... October 31st <laughs> evening, and at the stroke of midnight, it's a, the whole world is different now. <laughs> so. I bet that was a slippery slope. It's like they're waiting, and they, they <laughs> open the first box right after they take off their Halloween costume, and immediately out come the Christmas lights, and here's the star on the tree, and all sorts of stuff. I generally, I mean, I don't really have too much in my house in terms of decorations I generally go oh, elsewhere okay. to to experience those I did though and this is a this is a new thing I I found a kind of a recipe for uh, what is it uh, like mulling spices where you take allspice and cinnamon and cloves and all sorts of different things and I kind of I let that simmer on the stove and it makes the house smell very Christmassy um, it was very, very strong though. So I, I did it once and we'll see. It doesn't, it lingers for a couple of days and I might have to, I might have to do a, a smaller batch or not make it in such yeah. a big, I made it in quite a big saucepan. So I might, I might find a smaller thing. Oh, that's funny. There. So if it chases you out of the it did, house. It did make the house smell if great. If it chases you out of the house, that means you overdid it. So. Yeah, it didn't, I didn't notice it until I left uh, and then I came back <clears> and that's when I noticed it. Um, it wasn't appalling or overwhelming. It was just very, it was strong. It was a little, you know, if I, it was stronger than Febreze or any other thing that you'd put in, <laughs> in your house to make it smell good. I don't think my house smells bad to begin with, but, um, it was a, it was a stark contrast. So I sense that you are so, not a hard liner on this question. You're prepared I, to coexist I'm not. with... I think... <laughs> I, I am uh, more on the to each their own. You know, if you enjoy it, if you get something out of it, I'm happy for you. But I also <laughs> don't need that. Christmas is usually not my favorite holiday. I think it's mostly most of my memories of Christmas are 
coming home and getting random trumpet music to play for oh, the services sure. the night before or something like that. So there's only been a few Christmases where I wasn't actually, maybe this one will be the first Christmas where I'm not really, I don't have a specific job to do during a service. Well, I hope it changes your mind which about will be, Christmas. Which will be kind of exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited for it. We'll see. Maybe maybe it will feel. Yeah, my kids too would play this brass for five services on Christmas, and I think that's a big yeah. part of their associations. So <laughs> I love Christmas. And yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 lyrics of some Christmas songs, like um, "Lord Jesus Christ, Thy manger is the paradise at which my soul reclineth." You know, yeah. I, so I can take that any time of year, basically. But uh, so I don't judge either. Um, I do like that one. I remember that's every MLC yeah, Christmas yeah, concert, yeah, I think, ends yeah. with that kind of acapella. Yeah, the choir surrounds you. Very good. Surrounds the audience. and Oh, yeah. Gerhardt has a way with words. He sure does. So anyway, glad to get your feelings on that. Yeah. Um, now I'm on the record, so, accepting any, <laughs> any mail from our fans or people who feel... There you go. That might stir up the uh, fan base. Uh, and yeah. by the way, I see in the background, since we're on video together, that there's a new member of the We're Two or Three family. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a, I've got a dog yeah. last week. In between the last time we talked and, and today, I named him Camus after the French philosopher. Oh, that's wonderful. His <clears throat> part of it was his, uh, I just found out his original name was Hershey when he was in New Mexico and they were going to put him down because they just, there a lot of places are running out of room in the shelters. And so this shelter in Denver rescued him and they named him Canute. They were naming him all Indian mm. names or, uh, Eskimo names, or I don't know. I don't know what, uh, native American. Um, I don't know how they, how they did it, but his name was Canute. And I saw that and I, the first, other name that popped into my head was Camus, which is very similar sounding. And yeah, I could talk more about it, but I don't really feel like yeah. it right now. It's probably not not worth. But uh, Camus wrote a lot of really intriguing books, one of them being The Myth of Sisyphus, which is one of my favorites. Um, so if you, have a, if you want to put something on your book list as one to read, it's a very, it's kind of dense, but it, I thought it was very mm. intriguing. Okay. So. Um, yeah, Camus. Camus spelled C A M U S, right? Do I have that right? Strange. Yes. Okay. Yep. Correct. Cool. So, yep. Camus happily chewing on a toy over here. Hopefully, he's five months old. So, I'm hoping that we don't have to do too much more potty mm, training. Yeah. Only time will tell. C S Lewis said, "A man and his a man and his dog closes a gap in the universe," which which I love. It's like about the mystery of two different species creatures communicating yeah. what's going on there with dogs and yeah i think we've oh, talked we about that have. before yeah. you see i do re- repeat we, myself yeah well even back in cross country i remember they had a i i saw a video of like a dog weeping right. at the grave right. of former owner or something there's something going <laughs> on there that you just can't this isn't just a like what is the what's going on in t- inside the dog's mind in that mm-hmm. in that situation? It's it's more, you know, it's not like a goldfish. There's some maybe intelligence or something else that's that's happening that I just couldn't put my finger mm-hmm. 
but it is yeah, special. My, Camus and I are going to tear up all the trails out here. <laughs> yeah, my grand, I have a grand dog. Um, oh, what, what are they called again? Shoot, I'm blanking. With the short little legs that the Queen of England has. Uh, 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 <laughs> I am really bad with this as well. I know, I, Camus a husky oh, gosh, lab or golden retriever mix. This so. is terrible. Hope my kids don't hear this. So, I know I have to yeah. look it up. Queen of England's yeah, dog. Yeah, little short, little short little things. Anyway, this dog is named Charlie, and he can manifest expressions of guilt and expressions of all kinds of stuff. It's just crazy. Just crazy. Corgi, Corgi there is that it? Is. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, to our subject matter, I suppose. Um, I thought we might end up with a devotion that would just kind of blend into our conversation because I have several scriptures to bring up from the New Testament. Our, our broad topic, I think we agreed on, would be something we'll call intrapersonal communication. So that whole realm of things, ways we talk to ourselves and the things that we go on in our mind that then become the source of communication deficiencies or efficacy or either either or both um but the narrow topic what we want to start with is just that of anxiety which is just just a huge epidemic that is happening right now and we'll turn right to jesus in the sermon on the mount and this is matthew 6 where he said quite familiar therefore i tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So, yeah, I've been reading up on the topic of anxiety just because of my students. And um, there's a book called Unwinding Anxiety which is written by a behavioralist, and uh, you and I are not full-on behavioralists, but there is some truth there to, to um, what's going on in that process. So the author names a portion of the brain where we go to ruminate, and we go through a cycle of worrying thoughts that's, that triggers anxious feelings and triggers worrying thoughts, and it's a, one of those vicious cycles that can go on and on and on and he he writes about how somewhere in our minds from early on we got this thought in our heads that that I'm getting something out of this you know that if I just keep at this ruminating behavior I'm going to have some kind of breakthrough and come out the other side and and life is somehow different but uh, the author is quite convincing that if we just simply ask ourselves what am I getting from this we can eventually figure out the answer is flat out nothing that there's no good thing that comes from this place. And that's why I'm just fascinated by Jesus. Start with the Sermon on the Mount. You know, here he, how, how, how he got there centuries and centuries ahead of time, you know, with a line like, who by worrying can add a single hour to your life, that there's just nothing good that comes from this. And of course, he um, takes us to the heart of not worrying and the heart of not being um, captive to that. And that is in the care a father has for us. And so just a devotional thought there. We have more to say, but um, what does that trigger for you, John? Just thinking about a familiar verse like that and thinking about the, the uselessness of worrying processes. Yeah, so the first thing that came to my mind was, um, I think we've 
discussed previously, or take this hypothetical. So you imagine the, the things that you say to yourself when you're in this space. I don't know if there was a specific name that the author gave it, but when you're in this place where you're sort of ruminating and worrying and anxiety, and I think a lot of it centers around self-worth. You kind of are saying things about yourself in this, in this place. I know I do. So I will be ruminating, brooding, if Mm -hmm. you will. And I take the words that I'm saying to myself in that place. And now if you imagine that instead of saying those words about yourself, you were saying them to someone that you cared a lot about. And it, it totally flips the script because there's no, if I said the things that I said about myself to myself in that place of brooding, And if I said that to anyone that was close to me, I doubt that many of them would really talk to me again. It's just horrible, the things that that you say. And so it it kind of brings some light to, you know, just how brutal we can be on ourselves sometimes. Right. You think, when did I become this cruel person? If you said that to somebody else, you think, when did I become so brutal, so vicious? So, I mean, the self... Did I have... I didn't realize I had the capacity to say that kind of thing about anyone. Exactly. And then, but I'm saying it to myself all the time. So that that's yeah, kind of what the first really thing that, and the, that came up for me. The vertical dimension, I suppose, is Romans 8. Like, who are you to harass the one whom God himself has befriended? And who are you to condemn the one that God himself has justified at the cost of his son? And mm-hmm. So there is something about our call to love all people that that extends to ourselves in a certain sense. Um, at least we can, we can certainly delegitimize that kind of self-talk. And we'll get, I think we'll get more seriously to self-talk as well after we think through anxiety some more, mm-hmm. but they all are very interrelated for sure. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to see, interesting to see how these things manifest when you're talking with other people. So I know... I mean, rather intimately, my own brooding space. But then you can kind of see and pick up in others that they have a space like that too, and it kind of leaks through, seeps through the cracks. And I think it a lot of times comes out as uh, Mm self-deprecation or um, lack of... lack of... uh, lack of believing in their ability on something or lack of worth... Mm-hmm. And they'll be vocal about these things like, oh, I don't think I could ever do that. Or no, I'm a terrible this, or I'm not a very interesting person or any of these things. And one of the things that I've liked uh, to say is kind of indirect. And maybe, again, maybe this is something that we've discussed before, but you kind of phrase it like, please don't speak about my friend like that. You almost alienate the thought as this isn't something that is coming from you. This is something that something else is, is, is generated somewhere else, mm-hmm. but you kind of speak to them as if you're speaking to two different mm-hmm. people where one of them is the one that's berating. And one of them is the one that is being berated. And you said something to that effect where please don't talk about my friend. Yeah, like I've that. heard of a, I don't like it when people talk about my friend <laughs> like that. Heard, it's not nice. Heard a pastor's wife who will routinely say to her husband, Hey, that's your husband. That's my husband. You're talking about, which is like saying, "Yeah, don't, don't knock that guy." That's, I happen to be married to him. I, you know, I, I think the yeah. language of self-love is rightfully sort of uncomfortable for us. You know, it's just 
what do you mean by love and what's, what do our terms mean? Because scriptures predict that in these last times, people be, will become lovers of themselves, right? And so um, there's a place we don't want to go with this and a place that we do. I think that Jesus is often misquoted when he says, um, love your neighbor as yourself. I think what he means there is that we do love ourselves in the sense of we see to our own needs. If I'm hungry, I make sure I get food. I mean, no question about it. If I'm thirsty, I'm going to take care of that. You know, I'm committed to my well-being. I'm committed to having my needs met. And so he's assuming that's the case, and he's stretching us to think that my neighbor, I owe that to my neighbor, um, the same kind of love. And so it's not quite the same thing as um, well, as the words might strike our Western ears, maybe, if that makes any sense. But I, the fact that we have every reason to and are called to appropriate the gospel to ourselves and take it to heart and, and see our worth, our paradoxical, mysterious worth in the eyes of God that he should give his son for us. So there's, there definitely is, is a place that we can go safely and comfortably um, in the terms of the acceptance that comes in Christ that we extend also to ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. One last thing about the sort of speaking to people indirectly like that. My, here's a question. And it's a, another hypothetical. If So if we had a child who had no outside influence and we were somehow able to raise themselves and become a member of society without having all of any of the influence from outside, um, positive or negative, would there be, would that child have negative thoughts about themselves without being able to see or receive feedback from others, the thing that kind of yeah. generates those thoughts? And of course, it's a kind of, it's a crazy <laughs> hypothetical, right? That it's impossible to raise a child in a society like with it, without being in a society, you're always going to have influence from other people. But one of the things that I think happens is the, the negative thoughts are always put there by someone else. It's not something that you grow or start to ruminate about without having picked up some sort of signal that I'm not adequate or I don't meet expectations or I'm not, I don't have worth I think it's usually something that other people are there. And maybe that this leads us into the looking glass self, Cooley, and um, uh, social interactionism or symbolic interactionism. Sorry. But that's one of the – it kind of makes me sad, I think. I, I, don't, I don't think that people generate these thoughts on their own. I think they're usually a result of someone else, you know, sort of planting them there and repeatedly planting in there. And especially if that happens when you're really young, it can carry with you for a, a large part of life or it's just become part of the default circuitry of your brain that this is, this is who I am as not worth. This is who I am as not capable. Hmm. And that makes me, it makes me sad, but it, uh, maybe it's comforting in that it really says less about you and it says more about the people that put those things there. Mm -hmm. And so you can begin to start to disassociate these things where it's not that you don't have worth, worth, it's that someone else wasn't able to see that and they were wrong. 
It's an interesting thought experiment. I don't know what the conditions would be. I think the child without human contact, therefore no messages, probably wouldn't survive past six months, if that, you know, just because the, the yeah, is so so close to the bone for human contact. So I'm trying to think with you. And the question yeah. I ask myself well, is, how I, I does the sinful nature man, how would it manifest if it were not responding to those woundings and things? I wonder if I could alter the hypothetical to be more realistic in that you carefully curated the messages and symbols that you were able to give to this child and you filtered them so that anything that had negative connotation in terms of you're not worth this is removed. Would someone develop thoughts like that about themselves without input externally? So maybe if you had a perfect society, would there be negative intrapersonal communication? And hmm. I, I didn't mean it, I guess, as a hypothetical uh, that you would actually carry out or here I want to actually no, test people, this. It's more of a thought experiment. That. That, but to think about... That I have not heard about, and now I'm intrigued. But oh, I don't have the details. I didn't know this would come up. But people have raised children without without language, spoken to them to find out what is the language of heaven. It turns out to be Hebrew. That's what people have said. I think it's probably a falsified research from the Middle Ages. But that seems very. <laughs> but I'm guessing. I'm guessing those I babies. I want to see the IRB for yeah, that one. Believe me, um, I'm guessing those babies didn't thrive and survive if they really did that to them. But no, seriously, I, yeah. I, I think about, well, how would the sinful nature manifest if not, if not in being, you know, carrying torturous thoughts because of social punishment and looking into the social mirror and seeing worthlessness coming back, you know, which, which is how I think of the looking glass theory, looking into the social mirror and what's, what's being reflected back to tell me if I'm worth anything. No matter how well you can manage that for a child, if the sinful nature will find some other way to to expose itself and express itself, I don't know what that would be. It could be your megalomania. It could be <laughs> a vaunted, a vaunted narcissism. I mean, who knows? So, with the sinful nature, we are simply going to need law and gospel. It's going to show us ourselves in painful ways and show us the grace of God, and and it ends up. Yeah, it's, how can I? How can I invent a context for a child that will be better than that? As hard as I might try to remove every negative message, you know. I don't know. This is uh, me thinking out loud. I've never yeah. thought about these things in that way before. Yeah, it just it just came up. I I thought about posing the question mostly the uh, just exploring the idea around that negative thoughts in our head are I would argue always influenced or put there by someone else well, and then that kind of lo- would lead towards looking at the, the social mirror as we've, we've alluded to yeah what that makes me wonder about though is if a child is still possessed of a conscience now this is the voice of God, so to speak, telling the child how he or she ought to be um, in loving mom and dad and just down the whole line, in sharing toys and all of that. 
And with this child still not realize I'm not what I'm supposed to be, it would be on more of a vertical level relating to their own conscience, but would we guarantee mm-hmm. that this child will have wholesome and healthy self-concept because I the human see. element wasn't there? I mean, I, I agree with your premise. I think your premise is that that uh, we form a sense of self within the social realm and that that can be incredibly devastating and then, and then hard to get past and hard to get over. Only if this happened during our formation, that we we grew up in shame based on the social mirror, looking at looking in dad's face and seeing him look back with contempt. How does a person get past that? Right? I think uh, so I, yeah. I accept the premise that so much of what people suffer in this realm of dealing with themselves does come via other people, other sinners, really. I just don't know if you removed see, all that, think, that you'd suddenly be in nirvana, or not nirvana, but in... in yeah. Uh, well, well, now I'm thinking more... I mean, the sting of the law kind of requires a little bit of... Exactly. You, you missed the mark. You're, you don't have the worth. And so that can come... Maybe it's just you only received part of the message, and the other part of the message is, look, you messed up. You, you weren't perfect. You missed the mark. But there's someone who hit the mark for you. And then that, if that part of the message isn't there, you kind of need both of those to, to, be, to be present. Otherwise, if you, I mean, if, if we went to church and we were only preached the law, it would be, I wonder, very similar for mm-hmm. us. We're, it would be, we're just terrible, terrible people and there's nothing we can do. And there's, it's, it's not up to us. It's not in our control. So I wonder if maybe, uh, even just in the secular area where, you know, someone, a parent says something terrible to their child or demoralizes them and says, you're not worth something. The, the other part of that message would be you, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to, um, live up to all the expectations like that because there was someone else that was there that did that. Maybe something like that mm-hmm. where it's the, maybe the law part of the message is just that becomes the emphasis. And then that becomes the, the downward thinking spiral that you ruminate on. And then it's hard to pick up the rest about, you know, what God says about you, which is, as you said in the devotion portion. Yeah, interesting stuff. I, who, 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 by, who, by worrying, adds a single hour to their hmm. life. Clothing the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. Yeah. He makes sure, sure they're all provided for. How much more so does he care about you? And that that's what he thinks of you, that he would even go die on the cross for you. If you don't have that part of the message, then it just becomes, uh, ah, I don't know. Maybe I've taken the thought experiment too far. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Um, the second verse I was thinking about is Philippians 4. Um, it's related to the rumination. So it says, do not be anxious about anything, 
but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Um, this is what I've been trying to think about for myself lately is you can be in that ruminating place of, you know, just worry and anxiety, and that can be, become the place we pray out of. And this is totally good. I mean, God says, the, the psalmist says, out of the depths I've cried, O Lord, and O Lord, hear my prayer. And sometimes we pray from that sort of desperate position, for sure, from a hand-wringing place. But I also think that that verse that just says, pray with thanksgiving, says we can pray from, from another place as well. And that is from a place in which I've called to mind how good God has been to me. And and I thank him for that and pray pray grateful prayers too. And just for myself, I've been finding myself able to do that more and more, you know. Um, and one thing I saw, again, with the brain science, I'm no expert in the brain stuff, but I find some things really useful, such as the fact that we can go back and forth, I'm told, between gratitude and anxiety very quickly, but we really can't be both at the same time. That, And, and it seems like Paul already, in a certain crazy way, anticipated that when he says, pray with thanksgiving and um, not not being anxious, but, but with thanksgiving. So he does contrast those two things um, as if they're the opposites. And so... I've learned from just what I've picked up on listening to people talk about this and from reading that I'm learning how to do what's called layering on habits. And so if I've got a habit in my life, like just about every day I drive to my office and walk up to, or drive to the school and walk up to my office, that's something I do every day. And so I'm learning to layer on top of that a habit of gratitude, a habit of um, literally counting blessings and searching through my mind of the richest memories and the greatest uh, gifts of the present moment and saying thank you for them. And I, f I find that that is the alternative to rumination. Again, even though I can pray from that other place too. But um, I, anyway, I just find that really useful. I think it's, be it's making a difference for me as I think about what I'm meant to do with this mind of mine. And of course, we have every reason to be grateful to God. You know, the centerpiece is Christ and on his cross and Christ bursting from his tomb and this is this is heaven opened up to me that there's always that place um, sort of the centerpiece of our gratitude my God went through hell for me I'm not happy every day but my God went through hell for me and and that uh, without that you cut the nerve to my gratitude really without that sense of where I'd be without Jesus you know so the big thoughts are gratitude and anxiety don't happen at the same time um, there are many scriptures that call us to a certain capability of our thoughts that they direct us to think in these ways and we can't do it perfectly, but in Christ we, we can do it and confess that's, and repent when we're, we're wrong. But uh, that then the layering on of habits is, yeah, I'm, I'm finding it really super useful, especially in breaking what we said before, yeah. that that behavioralist thing where I think... I think there's something in me or something for me in that ruminating space, yeah. but I'm just slowly figuring out that there just isn't. And I don't have to go there. Yeah. I just don't have to go there. I've, I've noticed similar things about, <clears throat> excuse me, praying from a place of gratitude or thankfulness. Mm -hmm. I hadn't put them together as, as opposites. That's an interesting paradox. If I, if you would have told me, or ask me what the opposite of anxiety would be, I probably would not have said gratitude. Exactly. But but maybe they are 
maybe it's a hidden paradox in that way. It's a, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, now I'm just, now I'm just brooding about that. It's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Do not be anxious, but with Thanksgiving, present your request to God. Yeah. It's, to me, totally fascinating. Of course, there's First Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, and then cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. I heard someone preaching this recently. Um, it was a really good exegetical sermon, so he was explaining how the cast all your anxiety actually is a participle, which means he's saying, humble yourselves under God's right hand, Humble yourself that he might lift you up. And then the next word is literally casting all your anxiety on him, which means how do you do this humbling? Well, you humble yourself by casting your anxiety on God. And he said it was like a college student comes into his dorm room and tosses his book bag onto the bed, casting of anxiety um, away from ourselves and out to him. And, And that was based on his exegesis of the verb. And so I like that. I remember him talking about Pagans wring their hands over, you know, pagan religions. How do I get the deity, deity to care? How in the world do I get the deity to care? And that's the source of anxiety, right? And But uh, this verse says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. There stands Christ with the, with the wounds in his hands. The only one who understands you, really. And the only one who loves you perfectly. And the only one competent and capable and willing to carry all your stuff. And so... Um, yeah, what do you think? I'm just letting you respond. We're kind of just bouncing off yeah, each other right I, now. It's interesting because you can look to Scripture and you can see what God tells us about what he thinks about us. He, he He's very clear about that he cares for us, that he dies on the cross for us to to save us. What would you say to someone who can see these things? I mean, it's a reasonable kind of counter to the ruminating area to the negative self-talk to the lack of belief in one's ability whatever it is that's troubling them what would you say to someone who's able to you know who's been struggling in that space and then they hear these things and it just doesn't just doesn't do it it doesn't take the weight off the shoulders as you'd expect Mm. yeah it is the problem of appropriation i suppose that you're asking is that right just how do I take this to heart? And because you you see it, you you know it to be true, but it's not changing how I feel in the moment. And it's not. Maybe is it just something that takes repetition? Do you just need? Is it come back to this day after day after day, and slowly, you know, the rest for the weary and burdened will will slowly start to come or is it I, I think it might be that might be the case um, I remember hearing an analogy one time faith fact and experience are three guys walking along a wall faith is first and then fact and experience and so the idea is that f- no, fact walks first and faith behind an experience right so faith looks ahead to fact and the facts are regardless of how you feel about them, the facts are that God has given his son to the world to reconcile us to himself and has made promises we can't even imagine um, how grand they'll be. So faith looks forward and keeps its eye on the fact. 
trusting that experience is following. It's when faith turns around to check on experience and why don't I feel this or why don't I feel that? Are you, are you coming along? That's when faith can lose its way. And it took his eyes off the fact and began to depend on the experience. And so I, I think that our our struggle is to keep our eyes on these facts and understand that it's God's business to have experiences follow in his time. I think that we can go through seasons when it's just all struggle and only struggle. But the fact that you are, or that a person is clinging to the facts of Jesus, holding on as tight as you can, seeking the face of God under the cross, whatever that might be. I think that in the long haul, and that over time and in God's economy and timing, that the blessing is realized. You know, I often say there's no path out of the struggle. There's a promise of Christ to meet us there. And that isn't, that means the struggle doesn't go away necessarily in that moment. But that over time, that profound spiritual blessing comes into our lives by, by just clinging to the gospel. Like J.P. Keeler, one of our fathers said, not letting go until it blesses. So there's that time of just, I'm holding on and not letting go, waiting for the day it opens up to me and joy or peace or m more of a subjective experience of, of these things. But I think, I think it's a part of the delight of God in us when he can have us in that season when he's removed every feeling of his presence and we're still following. We still follow in love and trust. You know, so that'd be one approach. I think there's other things. I think what you suggested might be also true that if we talk, if we get to talking more about self-talk and, and how self-talk needs to be replaced with truer talk and, you know, that a Christian commits to saying things to himself that are true and that are rooted in Jesus. I think that some of this can get better over time. We can become more mature in how we're using our minds and I think it's the reason. So what oh, you're saying, yeah, so what you're saying is it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, is that all you needed me to say? The yeah, short it, answer. It, no, it, no. I uh, sometimes I go back to um, thinking about the brain science. It's just if you're in a place where it's been primarily struggle, you've created sort of default pathways or default places that you go, and it it's like ruts on the path and you're a cart that's moving along it's hard to get Definitely. out of that and you have to it's hard it's hard to you know I've, I've started climbing mountains out here and it's pretty fun and now it's getting towards the winter season and there's it's interesting to see how people are, are saying after a snowfall we're always checking the conditions like can we go climb right now is it safe is there going to be an avalanche what what is it like with the weather is it too cold? But one of the things that always comes up is, has someone been up there through the snow already? Have they started mm -hmm. to put those footprints down? Have they started to create that path? Because forging a new path is really, really hard to do or much harder than you know following in someone's footsteps. And so I like to think that it's similar in our minds where if we've gone a certain way before and we've, we've made a habit of ruminating or dwelling on certain thoughts it can be very tricky and very difficult to 
make new ones, not necessarily to eliminate the, the current things that are going on. It's maybe not possible to remove some of the thoughts that you've had forever, but it's also possible to, to add to those. Maybe as you said, you know, build on top of that routine. Mm -hmm. So when you realize you're stuck in this rut, I can also, you know, I'm going to add something to this now. I'm going to, I'm going to make it something that I can actually, that actually has a contribution where I can actually get something positive out of this because staying in the rut is not going Mm -hmm. to do anything. So, um, yeah, there is that verse you mentioned to me before we recorded as a man thinks in his heart. So he is that proverb as a man or woman thinks in his or her heart. Well, that's who you are, which is like saying the the sum total quality of my life is the sum total quality of my thoughts. There really is no reason to think there's any difference. My thinking, you know, becomes my lived experience over time, for sure. And so you think about a verse like the Apostle saying, I don't have this memorized, but you'll get the idea. You know, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, I don't have that list right, but... He really says, think about such things and the God of peace will be with you. And it, it strikes me that he's not saying something that's that's entirely beyond our grasp, but that, is it, that in Christ it is something we can realize. Now, the first word is important. It's whatever's true. So it can't just be illusion. It can't be just merely positive thinking, That you know, irregardless of whether it's factual or accurate. But it goes on to just say, God, God will guard your heart and be with you. And I remember um, doing a Bible study back as a pastor with a whole bunch of women crammed into a living room. And the the experiment there was, everybody, we're going to all go for three minutes to our favorite memory in life. We're going to go there as vividly as we can, calling to mind the, the smells and sounds and the feelings and all of that. Whatever that was, you know, getting married or whatever that might have been. And I remember that after the three minutes were up, that the the weather in the room had really changed. I mean, this was a buoyant group of ladies and, and I mean, it was just fun and they were up, they were upbeat and just everything had changed. And what's so instructive about that is that if I can lay on you the imperative, Hey, think about such and such and hearing that you do it and find out that your state, your internal state, so to speak, has been altered, then you're learning something about not just your, your responsibility, but your capability of doing that very thing. And it isn't like a snap your fingers, quick fix, now the struggle is over. It's just sort of defining the struggle at the level of my, my thoughts and, the again, the obligation to say true things to myself. And I, I suck. I mean, nothing good comes from this. It's self-condemning, as we said before, language. It's not, that's not the same as repenting. Because repentance brings refreshing, the apostle says. You don't wallow in worthlessness. That's not repentance, you know. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like I say, no end of the battle, but it's very, I think, informing about how the battle goes yeah. or, or can go. Um, I don't know if you remember this from back in the day. I think I've done this in class, the communication class, for quite a long time. But uh, it comes from a book, Telling Yourself the Truth by... Uh, Something, something, Bacchus, Ph.D., B-A-C-K-U-S. Um, so you listen to somebody talk, and you get to know them well, and let's say you're just their friend, or you could be maybe a counselor, but after a while you say to them, you know, I think I know what your self-talk is like. Tell me if I'm right. And then you draw a tabletop on a, on a napkin, a piece of paper, 
And on the tabletop, you write the word, whatever you think it is. It might be the word worthless, for example. You say, I th tell me if I'm right about this or, or correct me or make it more accurate, but I think you tell yourself you're worthless all the time. And the person may likely confirm that or tweak it, but then um, you might say, tell me the story within which that makes sense. Tell me the story. And it could be, for me, it's something that happened in first grade. Just some stupid thing a first grader said. And it's like, it's like really? <laughs> That's where this is coming from? And so you can't disrupt 40 years of torturous self-talk in just a brief intervention. But what we're beginning to do is make that tabletop wobble, so to speak. We're beginning to examine what maybe has been unexamined. We're beginning to try to do something about the taken-for-grantedness of it, the way it feels, you know, just enough to make it wobble. And then um, Bacchus would say, then you draw a second tabletop. And so Jesus said, you should know the truth, and the truth shall, shall set you free. So as opposed to the limiting beliefs that come from I'm worthless, I'm this, I'm that, um, profoundly limiting beliefs, there are, he said, you know the, you'll know the truth and it will set you free. So with the second table type, you're asking, what is that truth? Something in the realm of Christ that if I just had that in my head and in my heart, just as what you're talking about is when I feel the need to appropriate more, what is that truth I need to have in my head and my heart? And then he writes that on the tabletop. You know, in Christ I'm whatever that is, you know. And but then you draw the you draw the legs thick. And I'll always I'll ask, I will always ask my students, excuse me, what are the legs that hold up that belief? That I'm all I need in Christ. I have all I need in him. And that um, he looks at me and says with a beaming smile, You are worth more than many sparrows, right? And the answer is what holds up that tabletop of of worth in Christ or whatever it may be is the mighty promises of God. It's the means of grace. It's the Lord's Supper. It's that you're you're baptized. You know, it's just rock solid things. And and so it's not again a quick fix. It's just it is again that commitment to I must say true things to myself. I must say true things to myself. Um and when I fail I'll repent of that and ask God to help me again the next day. And I think that some of this can get better for a person who's just, you know, been consumed with maybe you're right, maybe really thick neural pathways after 40 years of saying this to himself. That that it's going to be a process. It's going to be a journey. That's cliche, but it's going to be the the unfolding of sanctification that will happen across time. But there is every reason to hope, based on what Paul said. Think about such things. You know, this is what you do. You think about, it. and I really think. You know, other parts of your answer is this is, it's a relational piece. It's why I need Christian friends. It's why I need Christian talk. It's why I need Christian music. It's why I need Christian art. Um, it's why I need to be in worship. It's why I need a devotional life. All of this is because I need to have Jesus and his grace to me in the front and not the back of my mind. It needs to be in the front and not the back of my mind. It needs to be present in my thoughts. And just think of how many scriptures are saying these things. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you sing songs, songs and hymns and so on with gratitude in your hearts toward God, there it is again. So no end to the struggle, but we can we can mature, I think, in how we go about that struggle. With the confidence that experience yeah, will follow. I, it will follow. In its own way, in its own time. I think I used to 
look down on these sort of like speaking affirmations over yourself or I used to think a lot of that kind of stuff was new agey kind of mumbo jumbo not it real but be. I think there's there are shreds of truth to it there are shreds of truth to it if it's used properly um, because the the way that we're talking about ourselves in our head does matter and so as you said before like you know just asking people to recall their favorite memory it shifts almost physically shifts how you are engaging with the people around you with whatever task is at hand and so being aware that you do have some agency over how you are approaching That's these things the point. especially when maybe maybe it's more difficult when we're in a place of struggle but we do have agency to to shift things in a in a positive direction it's a much better place to be when you believe in your ability to accomplish something than when you're you know you've just been telling yourself you're worthless you're worthless you're worthless and i think that favorite so, memory is going to almost i almost bet on it's going to be a grateful memory it's going to have gratitude at the core mm-hmm. of it something that you don't look back on and say boy did i deserve that but something that you received with an empty hand that was just a grace you know mm-hmm. so you're right i think that is the point is some agency um that comes in Christ to be able to walk in step with his spirit and cooperate with his work in me. So um, let's transition to, I think you're kind of thinking about something called self-efficacy. One more piece before we do, I thought maybe the the social anxiety piece might fit the where two or three sweet spot because this is about communication as well. So what do we say to those who are anxious socially? Um, and for some, it's quite debilitating, and we, we know that. And it's only getting worse because of reliance on technology. Um, so the causes... Well, can I speak uh, a little bit to that? Yeah, because I think we, we've talked about Cooley's looking glass self and symbolic interactionism, and I think maybe we just, if we kind of define that or clarify what that means, is that when we are surrounded by people others when we're in society, when we're in a social situation, mm-hmm. in a social environment, which is almost all the time, we pick up on the feedback that we receive from all of these other people. Whether and, and that could be a lack of feedback too. So if you say something as a joke to an audience and that audience is just deadpan quiet, you're going to pick up some, hopefully you would pick up some feedback as a, say you're trying to be a comedian here, that this joke is flopping, this isn't working, it's not funny, right? Which I think is hilarious, but maybe that's besides the point. <laughs> but we're, the, the idea is that we're always looking, we're in every situation picking up feedback from people around us, whether you're saying a joke or whether you're sharing a story, other people are giving you feedback that, oh, that's relatable, or, oh, that's not interesting, or there's all sorts of signals that we're picking up on. And when we pick up on all of these signals and we kind of, maybe some of them we ignore, maybe some of them we we hone in on, maybe some of them we enjoy, maybe others we're opposed to, but we, we collect all of these and we start to formulate ideas about our own being. So just going back to the comedian, because off the top of my head, it seems like a, an, 
interesting one. If you were a comedian and you have every stand up, every open mic that you've done, everything that you've said, people have laughed at and thought was funny. The feedback would be, these people think that I'm a funny person. And so you get that idea in your head and then that eventually you would believe about yourself. I'm a funny person. And you can trace it back and say, because all of these people, every time I say something, people think it's hilarious. I am a, I am a funny human being. That's kind of the, maybe an example of what the symbolic interactionism and Cooley's looking glass self are, is really saying. And so when we take this into uh, maybe not as humorous a situation where it could be the feedback that you're receiving is that I'm worthless, is that I'm not good enough, is that you'll never be good enough, you can start to formulate some pretty unrealistic expectations about what you should have been or should be and really terrible things about what you are. And I think what really makes this exacerbated is online, we get to curate the best versions of ourselves, right? So the things that we see about other people that we're formulating these expectations about are highly idealized and many, many times just flat out not true. So the thing, your idea of beauty is probably a lie. Your idea of funny is probably heavily curated. Your idea of strong is probably... Mm, you're probably not getting the full picture. So we see these things and they just amplify the negative, the negative things because they're not, they're not true. The feedback that we're receiving is, is false. And so that can, that can really compound on things. I guess that's, that's the, the idea or why I think the, you know, the pitfalls of social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all of these all these places where we're seeing things that we might perceive to be true or we might not be thinking are necessarily false but are really heavily curated and really you don't see what's going on behind that. You could see a guy driving a Porsche down the road and you might think the guy has like a great life but really inside he might be, you know, wanting to drive off the road in mm-hmm. the Porsche. You know, you have no idea. You can't tell when you when you have so many layers in between you and the actual human that's there. So... I guess that's what uh, just a, a brief overview of the like the looking glass self and how we are starting to generate these thoughts and ideas about ourselves, whether they positive or negative. And then why I think that it's getting worse is because we're further and further separating ourselves from the actual other person that's behind there. That's actually the source of feedback. Mm. So. Yeah, I like that theoretical area as well very much. The, the aspect of the Cooley principle or looking glass syndrome, it strikes me as the version that says whoever is most important to you, whoever matters the most what they think, you know, whoever looms large over your life in that way, that they're the ones that count. Well, what you think they think of you becomes your self-concept. What you really think, they really think about you. So as you're kind of saying, I think... Too perception is all over this. These are things that are not factual. It's what you think they think. But you know, a little child is just really helpless before this. I think we might have talked about this under social perception, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. But what I've thought lately is, I think George Herbert Mead had the 
notion of the generalized other, which is that you kind of average what you see in the social mirror, some kind of average for what's being reflected back as far as your value. Um, but I, I do like to think about Christ in those terms as looking to him to see the way he looks to me in grace and having that at least be my resilience to being kind of beat up socially. And I think for another person who struggles, to your question of how do I internalize this stuff and, you know, sort of draw sustenance in life from the things I know in my mind, I, th I think there is a social component there that I want to be part of your social mirror. You look in the social mirror, I want to be part of that mirror, and I'm the one looking to look back at you, reflecting the grace of God in Christ. And I think it's a great kindness that... You, to your question before, your really interesting thought experiment about thought experiment about children. Um, I think the alternative to what you were talking about, if it would, would be a child is raised with a healthy mirror, healthy social mirror, um, not exaggerating the child's importance, but not shaming either, you know. But above all, teaching a child to turn away from all of that into the what there is in the eyes of God. You know, the ironic blessing. Yeah, the Lord I guess. makes his face shine us. And look at that face a while. Look at that face a while, the one that shines on you, you know, in Christ. Sorry, my dog is snoring. Oh, that's adorable. Slightly, but I don't know if, I don't know if that'll come through. <laughs> no, I can't hear it. Um, he does, he does, Camus thinks it's very interesting though, and I do too. Uh, I did lose my train of thought for one brief second, but I'm hoping by the end of this sentence... I will have <laughs> re myself. Listening with bated breath. <laughs> yeah. Well, what you're saying, maybe the, the alternative that you're proposing is really just pointing to the, the table that has really strong legs. Yep. And making sure that that's somewhere that you're pointing every time that you're, you know, it's impossible to go throughout life without receiving this sort of negative feedback that might lead you to mm -hmm. ruminate. If, right given enough over time. But if you are, if you are also provided with the alternative, which is the truth, mm -hmm. then it becomes much easier to not let those pathways become so deeply ingrained into the, into the road that we can't escape. I them. think you're right. I think it's, it, it's going to, it's going to be a matter of, it's going to take some time. But to develop the habit of mind that learns to look away from self to Christ and look for every good thing in him, to think of that as a habit of mind, that um, I will ask God to help me nurture, just like the other, you know, layering out of habits that we talked about. Do you want to get to social anxiety? I think it is related, um, very much related yeah. to what you were talking about with symbolic interactionism and so on. So, as I understand it, there are three causes for the truly socially anxious person. One possible cause is physiological. So, the limbic system secretes too much of the enzyme or whatever. I'm not a scientist. I've heard it described as becoming hyper-aware of the presence of other people. Hyper-aware that I'm not alone and someone is in the room. And when it secretes that enzyme, then... I've heard it described as all my thoughts shrink down to being too small to mention. So a person literally cannot speak, literally cannot think of a single thing that uh, they're able to say and put out there. The second cause, I th you know, we're not, again, full-on behavioralists, but there certainly is another cause, and 
just terms of experience a person may have had that have taught them a response of, oh, oh, people, you know, oh, oh, people, and has taught them to, to fear that and think of that as threatening. And the third is, you know, these causes swirl together. The third is cognitive, which is how a person currently thinks, is currently thinking about the social issue, the social milieu. And so I think I'd have to say before I went on sabbatical and took a break from this stuff then, this was maybe 2014 or whatever, I would have, if I'm honest, had to have said, if this is you, it's going to be with you. There really isn't a way out of this. That uh, all the self-help books that are telling you how to get past this social anxiety, they're all, they're all a waste of money because it's just not possible, really. But the, the story has changed. And one more time with the brain science, of which I'm no expert, but uh, what is being said more now is that um, meditative practice, the practice of solitude and quiet, and and I would think wouldn't hurt to be grateful in that space too. But that that practice of of meditation and, and solitude can actually shrink the, the the fear center of a person's brain. Um, it actually shrinks, actually gets smaller, and it's a fascinating thing to think about. So that's not why you and I pray. We don't pray for that reason. We pray because. There's someone on the other side of our prayers that's hearing every single word, and that because our access to the Father is complete in Christ, we've got our fist around every string to His heart. You know that's why we pray. We pray in the childlike faith that knows, though a millions pray, I have His undivided attention when I pray in Christ, because God is not like a like a man who can pay attention to one thing at once. You know. But so that's why we pray. But I, I'm. I feel like it's not wrong to notice that there are other blessings that attach to that process, that there are other good things that come in that way. And so I think it's just useful for a person to look at habits of mind and habits of life, including meditation, spiritual meditation or Christian meditation. Um, let, let my mind travel down the thoughts of the ancient writers. Let me leave my, my thoughts behind for a time and follow the thought of John and follow the thought of Paul and get a reprieve at least, you know, from the thoughts that are torturous. And and I think over time there's every reason to think I, I, I may grow. Yeah, I think, as you said before, part of it, the physical part of it is almost a completely different conversation where if you, you know, if you have a tumor in your head that's pushing brains and nerves in certain ways that we might not be able to have control of. That's certainly one cause that could be leading people down, uh, say depression or, and it's not always a tumor. I mean, sometimes it's just a hormonal imbalance or whatever it might be. That's physiological. That's physically happening to you. That is something that you can't just meditate away. Correct. And I used to think meditation was, I don't, yeah. So I don't want to say that those things aren't like those things are very real and they're, but they're, they're dealt with differently. But the other side is that these things can also be caused by, you know, repeated habits that are, as you said, like the fear center of your brain is, is enlarged. And so I used to think that meditation was another one of those new agey type, uh, this has no benefit for me or I'm, I, it's something I want to learn to maybe make use of. 
I think it could be helpful. And and I don't if if done in the right way. Right, I don't mean to con- conflate. And not to say meditation two. and yeah, and not to say that meditation and prayer are synonymous, but I do think that there are probably similarities in that you are. It's not like you're praying so that you can shrink the fear center of your brain or that you can adjust it. It's it's but it it's the it's the effect, not the cause. Right. And the the reason is for something different, but it is it is also going to be it would be interesting to see, you know, what does the brain look like of a person who's who prays all the time? <laughs> Maybe that's a that would be an interesting study. Yeah. Or or someone who meditates all the time. I'm sure you can measure the differences between someone who's um, been thoughtful and mindful consistently. And, and yeah, let me just say again, I don't mean to conflate meditation and prayer at all. What I'm thinking is if there are those benefits that attach to the one, then how much more having the practice of the unhurried presence of the Savior with the Word of God open and the Word of Christ dwelling in my mind, how much more aren't there blessings untold we have not have yet to understand perhaps about what attaches to that. So so yeah, I I too yeah. am nervous around the thought of let's just kind of incorporate meditation or something like that. That's not what either of us are talking meditation about. Meditation is I feel a very broad word anyway. Or, I mean, Scripture speaks of meditating on the Word, and I've heard meditation as the, you know, some people, that to them is like a monk in rural China floating or something, you know. So it's well, it's are you emptying your very, mind or are you filling idea. your mind? I think that's the difference. Are you emptying your mind or are you filling your mind with something oh, good and better and wholesome and true based on the Holy Spirit's stamp? And so it's a, it's a, it's a good distinction. I mean, I, I draw something from the brain science kind of tentatively, but come back. So meditation would be emptying yeah. and prayer would That'd be, be one or, One version for sure. One, one version okay. for sure is. Interesting. I I wrongly use the word nirvana. They're almost opposites yeah, yeah. then. I wrongly threw out the word nirvana before, but this would be more in, in that wheelhouse of, you know, to empty oneself, that you and I would be concerned. What influences do you open yourself up to when you, when you um, think there's help there? I think it's not that far and away so from looking inside a, for the resources you need versus looking externally to to the Christ outside of us. You know. So prayer would be the filling up, then, filling of your mind. Sure. I've never thought about it like that. I mean, it is addressing God in my mind, whether spoken or unspoken, but it is on the basis of his word filling me. It is on the basis mm-hmm. of the knowledge I have of him upon which I meditate. I, and therefore, I direct my thoughts and prayers and desires to a good God who's revealed himself that way. And it's, it really isn't emptying oneself in his presence or emptying myself in my basement. <laughs> it really isn't that... Um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I, th- I keep coming back to that powerful sentence, you know. Well, I've been thinking about this wrong my entire life. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. No, I've, I've frequently felt or, or uh, yeah, prayer is oftentimes felt like a pouring out rather than a filling up. 
whether it's pouring out grief or sadness or worry or gratefulness or thankfulness or praise, it's always felt like I am the poorer. But maybe that maybe this is a a better way to think of it. Then. And I don't think we're disagreeing at all, John. I, 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 prayer is a pouring out. Prayer is definitely a pouring out. We're communicating mm-hmm. to God whatever we're pouring, you know, our grief or pain or gratitude, whatever it is. But it doesn't come from a place of, I want to sort of neutralize my mind and make, a, make it blank, um, which a lot yeah. of meditation kind of walks more down that I path. See. But as I fill myself with the Word of God and what He's revealed to Himself, to me about himself and and out of that serene confidence in him or out of that just knowing in desperation he is everything I need, whatever that is, it's not an emptying of my mind out of which this prayer comes. Does that make any sense? I see. Yeah, yeah that makes more sense. Okay. Glad that I haven't been praying wrong <laughs> for 30 years. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh. Only partially wrong. Are you ready for some dessert? Yeah, I think so. Well, maybe if we just touch oh, on um, self-efficacy. Self-efficacy yeah. is pretty closely related to um, like self-concept, as we talked about before, or the symbolic interactionism, where we are attributing thoughts to others from their feedback that we receive, and then we take those and we use them to help formulate ideas about ourselves. So, you know, going back to the, I don't know if I like this analogy or not, but the, the comedian on the stage, if, if the comedian hears the laughing after him saying mm-hmm. something, he's going to attribute, they must think that I'm funny. And that is an important step of the process for them, for him to then determine, okay, I am now, I'm funny. Uh, self, Efficacy works in a very similar way. And self-efficacy being, do I believe that I have the ability to achieve something in a certain domain? And so it's usually used as a measure, a measurable thing. For example, I studied it in academics, just academic self-efficacy. Do I believe that I have the ability to do well in school or in this class or on this test? And then you can measure it. Um, but it turns out it has a very similar uh, structure in that the student in the classroom will look at the teacher's nonverbals or other feedback that they receive from the teacher, and they will use that to assign, you know, what do I think the teacher thinks of my ability? Do I think the teacher thinks that I can do well on this test? And the feedback will determine yes or no, and then that will then lead towards do I believe that I can actually do well on this test? And then that is important because, well, at least in academics, the self-efficacy, the belief that you have the ability to do well in something is very predictive of whether you actually are able to do well in that something. It's very rare that you find someone who doesn't think that they can do well on something actually succeed. So Hmm. I think self-efficacy is probably... If you don't believe that you have the ability to do something, maybe if we shift away from the domain of academics, if we shift towards your ability to have agency in the lives of people that you care about or to you know, any other social thing that might um, lead towards your belief about your worth. 
maybe, I mean, maybe it could be like a, you know, an art teacher says that, oh, your drawing is terrible. You'll never be a good artist. And then the, the student then, you know, maybe the rest of their life goes thinking that I'm not a creative person that I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do this. I think efficacy is kind of, uh, I think it's relevant. It's worth, it's worth bringing up that it's, it's rather in the same realm of, um, you know, social anxiety and all of these other things. So I thought it was worth yeah, a mention. I like that. And I'm also maybe a little biased because it was what I did my mm-hmm. graduate thesis work on, but, but I, I do think it's important to realize that a lot of times the feedback that we receive, if, if we're looking at the, you know, say the digital space where the feedback that we're receiving is not real, then that intermediate step where we are determining what we think these other people think of us or what we think the expectation should be, oftentimes are purely just illusions that we're creating in our mind. They're not, they're not actually real. And so to be able to stop it before it gets too far into that process, being able to recognize that, oh, you know, that's photoshopped or, oh, that's, you know, no one is that happy all the time. It's not mm-hmm. possible, you know. So, so being able to stop it, or to be cognizant of that before, you know, mindlessly consuming it and leading it towards, you know, maybe negative thoughts about yourself or thoughts that you're not living up to a standard that may or may not even be real or achievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. You know, I think in my context, training. Among other things, pastors, where the Apostle Paul, talking about the public ministry, says, who is capable of such a task? person can assume he means no one, but the answer is that our capability comes entirely from Christ. And that maybe we don't think enough about that, that, that how we think about that could matter profoundly. It's not no. It's not nobody is. It's that only in Christ can a person be, and of course it comes in the paradox of, of Paul's thorn in the flesh, and and you know God, him asking God to take it from him. I assume so that he could serve better, um, but the answer is my grace is sufficient for you. So, how I look at you, God says, how I've treated you in Christ already, who have made you already in my Son, um, that is enough for you, and so off you go, Paul, back to work, you know. <laughs> enough wallowing in your weakness. So there are some really fascinating ways that that might, I have to think it through more, I guess, might uh, really intersect with our theology too. You were studying math though, right? Is that what the context was? So, well, I was going to be a math teacher. I actually, the domain that I was doing the research in to be hyper-specific was uh, first year students in psychology Mm. courses. But I was measuring the dynamic, you know, can we measure that the thoughts that students have about their teacher's belief or ability about themselves as a result of the feedback that they're receiving non-verbally in the classroom is really an important step that leads towards their actual construction of their own self-efficacy. So as most of the research on self-efficacy is usually as a predictive measure. You can measure whether someone has belief in their own ability And then that can correspond with or correlate with actual performance. There's plenty of research on that. Not much research on how self-efficacy is actually formulated. And so I wanted to contribute to that Mm, space a little bit. But to shift a little bit, 
what was that movie about the Jamaican bobsled team? What's that called? I forget the name of it. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Oh, goodness. Uh, now I have to look it up. Um, but there's a scene in there where I, I believe one of the one of the oh, Cool Runnings, that's the name of it. Um, <laughs> one of the, the bobsledders is kind of down on himself about his ability and the person, one of the teammates kind of like puts him in front of the mirror and like has him speak affirmations about himself. Like, I am, I am good at this in more or less words. But he, he does this over and over and it becomes this really passionate, fiery scene where this guy like, you know, gets jacked up and ready to, ready to go bobsled. But it, it, I think it's related to what you said earlier about being in that room with people who are just thinking about their, the happiest memory that they have. It totally shifts your, not just your mood, but there's something, there's something else that's changing too that I think is not irrelevant. And that I think, I mean, self-efficacy I think is similar. You know, if you're, if you are confident that you can, you can do something effectively. Oh, there's my dog snoring again. <laughs> um, but if you're confident that you have efficacy, it, uh, and you know, I'm speaking like in terms of anxiety in the social domain, if you, if you believe that, you know, if you can talk to yourself in a way that, no, I do have agency here. I do have ability to, you know, be a positive influence on other people or whatever it is that's giving you grief or strife. I think it's, it's very mm-hmm. effective. I, I, I love concepts like that. And of course, what I always love doing is, is uh, bringing in a spiritual dimension, you know, um, so that we aren't kind of stuck. I hear I'm manufacturing thir- certain responses in myself, but um, think about the fact that God says in the Bible, don't be afraid. Someone has counted 365. I'm not sure if that's true or not. If somebody just wants that to be true, that there are 365 times, he just says, don't be afraid. But the the thing I would want to notice is that he never just says, don't be afraid without providing the reason. He always provides the reason. And so the spiritual realm is that uh, sort of a sort of a deeply rooted Christian optimism. It, not pie in the sky, not just wishful thinking. Not illusion, but a deeply rooted spiritual optimism that says, ultimately, because of what Jesus has done, you and I end up in heaven. And, you know, go from there. The fact that that's how this all turns out, by the way. So it's every reason not to sit passively on your couch, but to get up off the couch and and, and serve in the ways I've been gifted to serve. And and it's, it's not that we're not capable, it's that our capability comes from comes from him so yeah it's a it's a mm-hmm. it's a secular set of ideas that we we um search and examine and try to keep what's good yeah yeah good stuff yeah i think i'd yeah i don't really have anything else about but i'm sure there's much more we could talk about but in terms of you know what is communication say about this? What does scripture say about this? I've, I don't know. I think we've exhausted it <laughs> for the time being, at least. We'll yeah. see, it'll be interesting to see what, um, kind of like the, the other episodes we've done on argumentation or any of the other topics that we've done. Maybe there's more content that we bring out later sure. that's maybe framed in a different way or something. So, yeah. 
I, I feel like on apologetics, our last episode, I think it was fun. I, we don't, for me, we only just scratched the surface for sure. Just scratched the surface. And so, yeah, yeah. always more to talk about. Yeah, it has been nice. We've done now three of these within maybe a month yeah. or so. So it's been, yeah, it's been good after a rather lengthy hiatus. So, right. Yeah, I think that brings us to dessert. What do you got? Oh, um, <clears throat> yeah, my dessert is actually still more communication stuff. I just, I heard something on NPR that might interest you because um, you've thought about this too. So is the guy, that Goldman guy who did the marshmallow experiment, actually talking about how that actually went. So under the category of, of emotional intelligence, we, sh- we should talk about someday. Daniel Goldman was the marshmallow test I believe test guy? so, if I'm not putting two guys together. Anyway, the guy I heard talking on the radio um, was the marshmallow test guy. That I know for sure. So what it was was he got curious. He was a researcher of some kind. He got curious about how and when children develop the ability to... to um, Delay gratification, right? And his daughter was four years old, so he took a bunch of four-year-olds and did the marshmallow test, which was uh, it's the only test he did. And it was, as people mostly know, here's a marshmallow on this table, and you can have it if you want, but if you can wait, I'll come back and give you two instead of one. Okay, and so it's all on videotape, and I've seen this videotape, you know, where the children are torturing themselves and distracting themselves and you know, all kinds of crazy stuff to try not to eat this marshmallow. And at various points, they give in, of course, and eat it. And but listening to this man talk, he was that's that was the only experiment. And he's found out that kids at different ages develop delayed gratification. There's some variety there, which wasn't surprising. And that was kind of it. But this was his own kids' friends, and so just as they were growing up, he just started to dawn on him that the differences he was seeing in their lives did seem to connect to or correlate with those that could delay gratification versus those that couldn't. And so he ended up studying them longitudinally, so over over the lifetimes at different ages, he would just chicken with them and see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so f- from this single experiment, um, what he talks about on, on the interview on NPR was the staggering correlation. I mean, just a flat-out staggering correlation. Kids who are in juvie versus kids who are, you know, making it to the best colleges. And it's all based on that one experiment. Just a powerful correlation. And so... The, the, Interesting. The worry you could walk away saying, well, this must be... You must either have it or you don't. At four years, four years old, your future is charted or something. <laughs> just based on that one um, trait. But what he concluded instead was, goes back to those original videos, and it just begins to catalog what are the strategies that those kids had. So those that distracted mm-hmm. themselves, those that did this or that, what are their strategies? And what he concluded instead is that those strategies could be really important to teach to kids at that level when when delayed gratification is emerging or should be emerging. So yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Because it would be... Yeah, that's really interesting. Because if you look at delayed gratification as a core trait of someone, as like the source of something, then it'd be kind of hard to predict, right? You'd just be like, this is something you have or don't. But to 
to know that it's something that you can teach, that you can coach, that you can train. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Did you speak about what strategies were most effective? I, I don't recall the detail on that. Um, I don't think he went deep into into it. He was mostly okay. trying to say, "Don't take away from this that you're doomed or whatever or yeah, scripted." Yeah, it's not. It's not a. Yeah. Yeah. But so. But that's really yeah. interesting. I wonder what was it like? Four years it old. It was four was years that? old. Yeah. The first level. When some kids were beginning to kind of, develop. I'm curious how I yeah, would have done it. I don't know. So obviously delayed gratification is you're, you're able to do the difficult thing now, which can include, can include waiting, but to do the thing other people might avoid because it's hard. Well, you're able to get yourself to do that thing. And you can just imagine how that plays out in all kinds of things in your education and beyond, you know. I, l I like to think that my marshmallow is still on the table <laughs> and I'm still waiting. <laughs> just kidding. At some point, you just, I'm gonna have two. I'm gonna have two. Someday. At some point, you just gotta eat the thing because I don't know. Two bags so my of dessert was about dessert. It was the, it was the meta dessert. Well, I had I had one, but I might I might save it because it brought up. I mean, I, I speaking of predictability or um, you know longitudinal studies and that kind of thing. I did hear a story. This guy was saying, uh, student was, you know, doing poor in class. He was, he wasn't doing that well. He was a junior. He was taking the SAT or something like that. And so he goes and he takes the test and it turns out he got it like a 1470 or something. And he was like, wow. I mean, I thought I was pretty dumb, but I guess I'm a lot smarter now. I like, and so he, you know, he, he went into his senior year. He actually started going to class a little bit more. He started studying. He went to community college, got a, um, got a degree and eventually became a very successful magazine entrepreneur or something mm -hmm. like that. He had, he had a great life and something like 12 or 17 years later, he gets a letter in the mail from the SAT board. And it turns out that the year that he took the test, that he had one of 12 or 13 scores that were incorrect, that were sent to the wrong people. He actually had like a, like five hundred seventy four or something, some terrible score that was that was bad, and it, it was just really interesting because it wasn't the score that that did it, but he it wasn't that he was actually smart, but he started acting like he was smart. He started going to class, he started applying himself, and that's kind of what just changed the trajectory mm. of his life. You know, if he would have gotten that result, I I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's related to. I think so. Marshmallow test a so, little bit. Maybe it's kind of related to what we were actually just right. talking about in terms of the belief in your ability. You should just give everybody the but, highest score. I mean, what's the what's the application <laughs> of that? Oh, it's fascinating though. Yeah, I don't. I well, I think that's just something that it's not something like you need a standardized test to mm -hmm. show someone that you have capability. I think we can. That's something you can foster in children from you know yeah. from very early on. Whether it's teaching them a strategy about how not to eat a marshmallow or, you know, can you do well on your homework or mm. can you, you know, can you make friends? Can you X, right. Y, or Z? Makes me think that there could be all kinds of unintended consequences coming out of testing. All the kids that yeah. didn't get that well, score thought, and thought it, predi it predicted thought their whole very, future. Yeah. yeah. Just off that one probably somewhat arbitrary score 
you know, maybe you, maybe you weren't feeling well the day mm-hmm. you took the test. Maybe you didn't have enough to eat and your brain wasn't functioning at its capacity. And I, I do buy in that there's bias in those tests as well. Um, there's really mm-hmm. no question about it, I don't think. I mean, we could probably, I mean, I don't know if it would fit in this podcast, but I would love to talk at length about just assessment in general. Mm-hmm. Because right now I think it's rather, I think there's a lot more that can be done because right now it's kind of like zero to a hundred for whatever given year and whatever given domain, whatever class you're in, say math, just because that's what I was going to be teaching. So say you get out of all of the possible assessments that you were given, whether it's a quiz or an exam or a test or a, a question or a word problem out of all of those throughout the year, you maybe get say 92% of them correct. And that's what determines how well you did in that course. Or I think it's kind of a static measurement. What instead could be done is to take a maybe periodic examinations about a similar topic. So you sprinkle in questions that are related, say, about the Pythagorean theorem throughout a portion of the year. And you, you chart how well students are doing on those questions like, do they get them, are they getting them more right the longer that we do the testing? And so you can make more of a, a graph, you can make a chart, a trajectory of how fast someone's learning. I think you could do something like that with assessment. That would be really interesting. Yeah, I'm going to bite my tongue. I had some things I was going to bring up to respond to you about experimentation and stuff I've heard, but maybe there'd be an episode on assessment slash learning itself. Because I don't know much about assessment, but I have thought about learning and including how adults learn. That, that might be interesting. So I'll hold back the little anecdotes hmm. I have. for. Yeah, I wonder what the... It's not something I would have thought as like a Christian subject, but I do... I mean, the tradition of Christianity in, in a, as a, a tradition of communication, I think, is, is valid. And so I would imagine that, you know, how to teach is also some sprinkled throughout Scripture as well. Well, there there could even be just I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and that's a reason to want to understand how our minds work and mm-hmm. praise God as we yeah. exercise them. I think that could be could have some interesting. I think points of contact with our Christian yeah. theology. I wonder because the main thing that I think is missing is just the importance of failure as a, a impetus for growth. You have to be, it's unreasonable to expect that you are successful at every single thing that you do throughout the course of a year. And then that is indicative of growth. It's almost as if you would, if you're getting a hundred percent on everything, you're not being pushed hard enough. You're not actually growing. You're just kind of static. You're just, you're just regurgitating what you already know and you're not being pushed. Mm-hmm. Maybe Vygotsky comes into it a little bit mm-hmm. too, where you have this zone that isn't totally out of the realm of possibility, but also not something that you're just comfortable doing that is optimal for, for being able to learn. So, Hey John, I got some place to be. I realize it's yeah. past, past yeah. seven o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Past. I'll save my other dessert <laughs> okay. for our, for our next, I'm for our next episode. So yeah. Put that in the fridge for me. Uh, okay. Um, 
I was actually hoping you were just going to get up and walk away, and that would have been an end- I still awesome can. ending. <laughs> and you could narrate it because people All can't right. see it. This is an audio recording. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, okay. he's taking his headphones off. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, it's been great. Yeah. Thanks for listening again. Yeah, thanks, um, everybody. We appreciate all the hate mail. Mm. And <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on the Where Two or Three podcast. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>